Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. guys well welcome back to the equipping and grace podcast my name is dave and i'm the host for this show and with me today is my new friend john and brother in christ uh john can you tell us a little bit about your life marriage ministry and any ministry projects that you're working on brother well thank you very much for allowing me to be on your podcast today my name is john benzinger i get to be the pastor of redeemer bible church in gilbert arizona uh, the best thing about me is I'm married to my wife, Katie, for the past 11 years, and we have four kids, um, Colin, Ava, Emma, and Jace, and we live uh, we live here in Arizona. We're transplants from California, so don't hold that against us, and um, it is, it's truly, a, like I said, it, it is a blessing to be on your podcast. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you for your bold ministry uh, there in Arizona. It's needed, and for this great book that you've that you've written, uh, Stand Christianity versus Social Justice. We're both G3 authors, so that's cool. Yes, it uh, is. Yeah. So, can you uh, tell us about this book? You know, why you wrote it and uh, all those things. How, how is it being received? I think you were sharing a little bit about that when we were talking before we recorded. Yeah. So, this is a book that I didn't want to write. It was something that, um, I didn't really understand the issues clearly when uh, before I wrote the book. So I kind of sat on the sidelines waiting for others to respond to it. Uh, we have a watchman class within evangelicalism that um, fought tons of battles in the past and uh, were victorious over things like the emergent church and postmodernism and prosperity movement, homosexual movement. Um, things like the new perspective on Paul, all of these things that have risen up against the church um, have been roundly defeated, destroyed, and moved, uh, pushed into the dustbin of history within evangelicalism. However, this one wasn't. And so I waited and waited and waited and waited for that watchman class to, uh, to, to respond. And there were, except for a couple courageous exceptions, there were crickets. And as a result of that, what started happening here in Arizona is some pretty large churches started embracing the social justice movement, started encouraging their people to um, embrace things like critical race theory and embrace that the fact that they're white makes them an oppressor, makes them racist simply because of their skin color and the privilege that they supposedly received because of their whiteness. And so that started happening here. Um, and so I'm waiting for the watchmen and I'm seeing things happening here. We're seeing the riots take place in 2020. And it wasn't until the fall of 2020 where the proverbial penny dropped for me. And I realized, wait a minute, this is actually, this is actually heresy. This is another religion 
And I need to treat this the way that I would treat Mormonism, for instance. Here is the third largest Mormon population in the world is here in the East Valley of Arizona. And so I need to treat it like that. This is a false religion that is attacking Christianity. It's disguised as a political movement, but it's really a false religion. And so I need to protect the flock at Redeemer from this false doctrine. And so in preaching the series that became the book Stand, um, what started happening is people started sharing that series like crazy. And so hundreds of people started showing up to the church from these woke churches because these churches were changing. They weren't being honest about the change. They weren't being public and forthright about it. They're trying to slip it in uh, unaware, but people were, they have God's spirit. They're clearly able to sniff it out. And they said, okay, we're out of here. Where can we go? Where are we going to be safe? Where are we going to find a church and leadership that's not going to change on us? And at that same time, this series came out as people were wondering. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds started coming to Redeemer. So it became, it started with a desire to protect the flock from false doctrine that was showing up all over their news feeds and all over their social media. And so, and it, from there, it became this, this, this thing that just kind of took off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I think in the book, you talk a little bit about you know, your background in, in, in law and those kind of things. Could you could you mention talk a little bit about that just so people understand that? Why did you do that? And those kind of things. Yeah. As, as I was going to college at the end of the 90s, uh, I was realizing that Christianity was not becoming the dominant was was not going to remain the dominant um, influence in the culture that we were becoming post-Christian. So as a result of that, I needed to not only study the Bible well, but as a 20 something year old, I thought I really need to understand my culture. So before going into an MDiv program to get all the tools to be a pastor, I decided I needed a master's degree in postmodern philosophy in order to understand the, the world I was going into. I was trying to view myself as a missionary going into my culture, but I'm I'm a fish and I live in this water. So I need to I need to understand the culture that I live in better so that I can bridge the two worlds from the first century in the Bible in the New Testament to the 21st century of America. So before going to the MDiv, I got this degree in postmodern philosophy, reading some, uh, many of the authors that became the, the foundation for what is now the social justice movement. So not the actual people that, that created critical race theory specifically, but those that they relied on for their for their stuff, guys like Foucault and Derrida and Rorty and others. And so those are the guys that I was reading 20, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And so when I when I started hearing about this in 2015, 2016, hearing about InterVarsity, bringing people in and talking about uh, these, these things, I thought, Oh, well, our watchmen are going to notice this one. It's not going to be a problem. If I can see it, they're going to see it. I know what this is. This is just whitewash postmodernism. Let's just, you know, do away with it. And 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, nothing, 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 except like I said, a few, a few very, very, very courageous exceptions. And so I'm in Owen, Strayon. 
yeah, you had John MacArthur doing a series against it in 2017. You had guys like Michael O'Fallon and James White talking about it earlier than that. Um, but yeah, there, uh, except for a few notable exceptions before 2020, it was crickets. You couldn't, you, you, you didn't hear about it. It wasn't a big deal until the MLK 50 thing came out. And that's when people started going, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here in evangelicalism? But there were others who were talking about it even before that. But, but for me, I thought, well, eventually people, they're going to, they just need some kind of momentum. They need a push to get us going. And then, then we'll, we'll have conferences about it and then it'll be, be torn apart just like these other things were. And it just never happened. Even to this day, it's really never happened. Yep. Yep. It hasn't. Well, you know, for those that are unfamiliar with critical race theory and intersectionality, given your background, what are those terms and what do they mean and how do they attack a biblical worldview? Yeah. So this, uh, so in, in trying to be as non-technical as possible, critical race theory, critical means means to criticize. So we're going to criticize society through the lens of race. And race is seen as oppressor versus oppressed. So there are oppressor races and there are oppressed races. And everything that you see in society can be understood through that framework of oppression. So when it comes to things like uh, power structures in the world, wealth building, advantage, privilege, all of that is tied to race. So, um, so, so for so for instance, uh, white people would then be automatically racist because they not because they do acts of racism like dress in a hood and burn crosses on. Uh, the lawns of people of color, that's not it. But it's because you've benefited from the oppression in the past. You've benefited from privilege now that automatically makes you a racist because you're benefiting from and promoting the racist structures of our world that, that have led to the oppression of people who aren't white. Or if you just change, take race out and put in um, critical uh feminist studies then it's just substitute white for male or substitute so if it's critical queer theory substitute male for a heterosexual and it's it's all the same thing so or or take out uh heterosexual and put um put fit or healthy or thin, you know, and then automatically now there's critical fat theory. And so there's all of these different modes of oppression out there. And this is how you criticize the culture is through that. So critical race theory is doing that with race. Now, intersectionality is taking all of these is the intersection of all of these lines of oppression. So, so it would be the, the least oppressed person would be a white male middle-class Protestant fit person. Okay. So that person, it has no oppression at all, they would say, but turn them into a young person. And now it's young versus old, turn them into a young black person. And now it's old and young and black versus 
white, now add to that poor, add to that LGBT, add to that disabled, add to that fat, add to that illegal alien status. And you see these intersections of oppression, which then these these people who, who have all of these intersections of oppression have more knowledge about the oppression in the world than those who don't have those intersections. And so intersectionality then comes along and says, we need to learn from the oppressed. And so tell us what it's like to be an oppressed person. And that's where intersectionality comes in. Now, how does it attack a biblical worldview? Uh, I spend a whole chapter on this. I think it's chapter five in the book, but briefly it redefines humanity. So humanity is no longer created in the image of God. The Imago Dei is, is completely done away with, which is every ethnicity on the planet. There's not multiple races. There's one race. It's two genders, male and female. It's marriage existing for the uniting of two genders in order to create a new family. Um, it's, it's human beings. They're equal in, in value and dignity and deserving of respect. And so it does away with all of that replaces it with the oppressor oppressed paradigm um original sin is done away with now your original sin is not uh, it isn't inherited from adam it's not something that is a part of what you are as a human being it is not um it is not the defilement of sin um as rebellion against god it is now the defilement for race it's the defilement of your race or for for gender, it's the defilement of being male. You, you are automatically guilty or innocent based on the group that you belong to. So if you're male, if you're heterosexual, if you're Protestant, if you're uh, just fill in the blank, you are automatically an oppressor. Or if you're not those things, you're automatically oppressed. So it's no longer individual sin that needs salvation. It is group sin that needs the releasing of privilege and needs the uh, the, uh, the 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 ultimate eschaton, which is where everything, all the uh, oppression, quote unquote, is overthrown, and there's a new system in place that is more equal, supposedly, which then leads to. So we've got humanity and sin. We'll, we'll end with justification. Justification is the one-time declaration that a person is innocent based on the merits of Christ that are received by faith alone. Um, justification in the social justice movement is um, getting the praise and approval of the world. By saying you're you're okay, you you believe the right things and you're acting the right way, so you're okay. Because there's no forgiveness in the social justice movement. You can't have forgiveness in the social justice movement. The moment you forgive your oppressor, you've given in to the oppression. So that it is an endless hamster wheel of confession and penance and repentance and more confession and deeper confession. There's never forgiveness. There's never freedom. So it becomes really an anti-gospel movement at its very core. So I go through about 12 different ways that it's it's a completely different religion. But but that's just three there. Yeah, that's, that's really good, brother. You know, as I've watched uh, this movement kind of and I've. I always like you watch and and see where's the where's this doctrine heading, you know, and where what kind of fruit is it producing? And, and I've seen um, many people that I used to respect go go this direction, yeah. and then they start saying things like, 
we need to have sociology above theology. And that's when the alarm bells go off for me. Mm. You start making statements like that or other other statements. And the, the, the MLK 50, like you mentioned earlier, that was a big thing. And then I started seeing all these huge long books. I think this is around 2014. You started seeing books on racial reconciliation come out. And I'm like, well, what is yeah. this? And we'll play it out. And we'll see what it is. And then we saw what that is, right? We've seen what that that where that goes. And like yes. you're talking about, it it's it's destructive. It it places the wrong emphasis um, on a, on our on our um, humanity. It destroys our the the uniqueness that we have as as men and women made in the image of God and so absolutely and that's why in the book believing in the sufficiency of scripture and realizing this is an anti-gospel movement um is there a book in the New Testament that deals with an anti-gospel movement? There is the book of Galatians. So I used Galatians as the paradigm to critique the social justice movement. And when you do that, it is mind-blowing. The parallels between the Judaistic um, heresy in the first century, the way it infiltrated and even impacted leaders like Barnabas and Paul and Peter, and the way that Paul argues against the, the 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 Judaizers is is equal to the way that we should argue against the social justice movement. So it's not like it's a this obscure thing that you're like, gosh, you just really got to study and really got to know. All. Like, no, you've got the book of Galatians. Galatians, if you understand the doctrine in that book, you will see through the social justice movement incredibly easy. I just happen to have a background in the things that kind of helped me understand it. But but at the same on it in its own merits, but at the same time, knowing Galatians, having preached through that book back in 2016 and 17, realizing, wait a minute, this this whole book is a paradigm to not only understand it truly in light of God's word, but and not only deconstruct it according to God's word but also how to respond to it. What, what should we do in, in, in response to this? Galatians gives all of that as well. So that's really the three parts of the book is identifying it as heresy, showing here are the, here are the arguments in Galatians that help us understand the social justice movement in light of the truth. And then how do we respond from there? That's really good, brother. Well, what most, we're talking a little bit about this. I think we've scratched yeah. the surface on this question, but what concerns you most about the church's social justice conversation today? Yeah, so for a, a, a movement in Protestantism and then evangelicalism, which is devoted to the authority of Scripture, has its primary primary hallmark really has been the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, um, the inspiration of scripture, all coming from the inspiration of scripture. What, what bothers me most is that this movement didn't come from exegesis. It didn't come from deep studies of words and syntax and cultural backgrounds and historical backgrounds. Like it's not a, so as a result of that, it is a, an anti-God, anti-gospel, anti-human, anti-Christ ideology that's being inserted into words in the Bible, redefining them so that Christians believe that love as defined by the social justice movement, justice defined by the social justice movement, and so on, that all of those things really are taught in the Bible. When they're not, it's exactly what the Judaizers did with faith is the exact same thing. And so it is a 
and law. And so it's, it's the same kind of thing that, so, so what bothers me is it is an, it is a, a gospel substitute that is being synthesized with evangelical Christianity and saying, we need to use this anti-Christian satanic doctrine of demons and use it to understand not just the Bible, but understand ourselves, understand everything in the world. It is a, it is a, an alternative worldview that Christians are saying, oh, we can integrate this. We, we can pull this right in. And my response is like, do you do the same thing with the new age movement? Do you do the same thing with Mormonism? Do you do the same thing with Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam? Like these are completely different views of the world. They, they're, they're antithetical to each other. But this one, because it's it's poking at some kind of guilt that you might have over things that you may have thought at some time in your life about some other races that are ethnicities. There's only one race, other ethnicities that because of that, you're giving credence and trying to mix this, synthesize it with Christianity. No, it should be expunged from Christianity. So that's my biggest fear is that we don't have the discernment to see it. And we don't have, and we have, we don't have a backbone to fight it. That's ooh, that's really good. Yeah, we'll, we'll come. We're gonna come back to that backbone part in in a, in a little bit. But yeah, um, it, you're talking about. I think I think one of the biggest questions that people have, uh, that that are paying attention, they're they're reading the books, they're they're understanding a little more. Is, is this social justice movement another form of the social gospel we saw rise up in previous generations? Uh, I think it is. Um, it's not identical, but it is very similar. And it's very similar because both at the beginning, end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century, and now here in the opening decades of the 21st century, those were two moments in history when Marxism was being pushed um, in the wider culture as the answer to some of society's problems. And so what happened is that Christians back then and now synthesized Christianity with socialism. So, I mean, back in the day, it was called the social gospel or Christian socialism. So it was taking atheistic anti-Christian theories of economics and and, and mixing them with Christianity and saying, we need to be all about love. We need to downplay doctrine. We need to upplay uh, practical Christianity. We need to be not so, don't be so concerned about doctrines that divide, be more concerned about love, which unites and things of that nature, which all, which, which the, the second side of that, of that thing sounds great. Yeah. We, we need to love one another, but it's the outworking of that. That is the issue. So there's structural sins back a hundred years ago that are answered with uh, the right to vote and uh, workplace laws and um, prohibition and world peace and all of these things back then that, so it's just, so it's a replay. I think it is an absolute replay. And, and, and the sad part about it is that we don't learn from history. So we, we don't look at that and go, wait, that's what birthed the uh the mainline denominations that that's that's where the mainline denominations they embrace this and that's the direction they went totally apostate now and uh these evangelicals think that they can drink the same poison 
and not have the same results and not lead to apostasy. So when I, when I talk to leaders about this, who are going down this road, I say to them, listen, you, it may not happen in your lifetime, but it, it will happen in the people that are, are in your generation, but it will happen in the generations that you're discipling now because they don't, they don't have the, the biblical foundations that maybe you do. So you're, you're really trying to, to hold down to sound doctrine and integrate some of these ideas, but not letting it take over. Great. But your disciples won't do that. Your disciples aren't going to do that. They'll just reject Christianity and embrace the movement and keep going. So these churches that do this eventually will become like the the uh, the mainline denominations. That's not me being a prophet. That's me. Be, that's me looking at history and going. If you're going down the same road, you're going to get the same results. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an example of that. You saw the you mentioned the emergent church. Well, the emergent church folded into you know we would use air quotes for this progressive. Christianity. Exactly. You have you have guys like Brian McLaren and others who just went over to that side and now they're promoting, you know, basically blatant new age theology and other other things that are totally, you know, not even biblical Christianity. And they have been for a long time. Just that's a ready made example. That it is. And it's not from 100 years ago. It's like 20 years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we and that's the thing about evangelicals, social justice warriors, is they think I can imbibe this stuff and not turn into a heretic. And it's like, well, you can look at all these people that that did imbibe it and did become heretics. Why do you think you're special? We're actually supposed to be the opposite. Right. That's Galatians 6 1. It, like we're, we're supposed to we're, we're, or 6 2. That we're supposed to take heed lest we fall. We're supposed to there by the grace of God go. I like if it were for God's grace, that would be me. Like we should be tempting faith. We should be tempting the, uh, the drinking the false doctrine and hoping that we stay faithful. We should expunge it. There's nothing in the, we're, we're, it's Psalm 1. We don't stand in the seat of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We we, we do the opposite of that. And so it, it is a, it's sad. It's it's an arrogance amongst the uh, the evangelical elites that think, yeah, we can do this, and, and or, or or pastors that think, yeah, you know, we can do this. They have no background in any of it. They have no they have no background in philosophy. They have no background in critical theory. They 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 they, they don't. They just read the books and like, oh, this is really good, and oh yeah, that that's helpful. That's convicting, and blah blah blah. They don't know where it's coming from. They didn't they didn't do any of that hard work back in the and so they just, and, and not only that, but most pastors have a Sunday school knowledge of the Bible anyway. They they, they don't spend a lot of time studying and 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 uh, and being discipled by godly men who who taught them sound doctrine and then affirmed them through ordination. Like they, that's not sadly that's not what's happening a lot of times today. And so they they're pseudo intellectuals that believe that they know what they're talking about. When they, because they read a couple books and blogs and listened to some podcasts, but they don't, they don't have the background to understand this stuff. And the ones that do have the background, oh, they're just fundamentalists. They're just wackos. They're just crazy. You know, they're just extremists. It's like we, we know what we're talking about. We we have thousands of dollars of debt to prove it from from school loans. <laughs> you know, right, like, right. right. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. So it's not me going, oh, yeah, I'm so smart. I'm so good. It's not that. It's that God uniquely equipped me back in the day to see this stuff and go, this is not this is not biblical. It's it's not even close to biblical. And, and it's all over the New Testament that we need to expunge it, not not flirt with it.
Yeah. I think that brings up a good point about, you know, Titus uh, 1, I think it's Titus 1-9. Absolutely. Elders being able to refute doctrine. And I think we have become many, many, I think many, sadly, and they don't like the word many because it implies most. Um, But many, uh, uh, I think pastors have succumbed to the fear of man and have are not standing up on this. And that, and that breaks my heart because I, 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 most of my friends are pastors. I, I love pastors. I want to pray for yeah. the pastors. I want to encourage them. But uh, I think that I, I wish that more pastors like yourself would, even even if even if they're not going to write a book, even if they're not going to write an article or a podcast, they would they would do what you did and preach a series to the people and help them, you know, understand these things and how it's infiltrating the church, infl- infecting their lives and their kids and and those kind of things. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, God. Yeah. A lot. So the fear of man has become a ministry philosophy in, in most churches uh, today, sadly um, dominated by what is the world going to think about us dominated by, we don't want to make anybody mad dominated by gosh, if we, if we say this or do this, we're not going to have, we're not going to have funding. People are going to leave our church. So, so, so the fear of man is dominant within pastors' hearts. And number one, none of us, nobody is immune to it. I'm not immune to it. But there is a sense where a, a pastor has got to say, I know the Bible well enough to know that this is wrong. And I have an appointment before the Lord where he tells me in Hebrews 13, 17, that I will give an account for the souls of the people that he has entrusted to my care. So I better make sure that I protect the flock from things that are demonic doctrines, doctrines of demons, first Timothy 4, 1. And unfortunately, The one thing that is the unpardonable sin in evangelicalism today is being a fundamentalist. And a fundamentalist is somebody who will actually call out sin and false doctrine. That is the one unpardonable sin. That is the one group that pastors have no problem trashing. They will not talk about homosexuality. They won't talk about transgender. They won't talk about false doctrine. They they won't talk about anything except they will rip on what they think are fundamentalists. And it is, it is a sad day that we've gotten to where they will more readily attack brothers. They will be in heaven with than they will attack false teachers and false doctrine. And so it is. So for us today, I think there, we, we need a significant wake up call in evangelicalism. And I'm just not, I'm just not sure that's going to happen. So, I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that part of my job is protecting my flock from evangelicalism. And so it's just because it's so overrun by false doctrine. It's so overrun by a lack of discernment that I've, I've, uh, part of our podcast, part of our life as pastors is, is deconstructing evangelicals who are going crazy who are going unbiblical, but we're the bad guys for doing that. 
they're not bad for for embracing uh, heresy and promoting it as truth. No, they're they're not the bad guys. We're the bad guys for uh, calling it out. So things are upside down right now. And it's unfortunate because God's people are starving for clarity right now. They're starving for conviction. They're starving for somebody to say, this is right and this is wrong because this is what God's word said. And they're starving for courage. They they need leaders. They need leaders that are going to lead them biblically. And there, there are a lot of guys who are leaders, but who are taking them over the cliff of false doctrine. And that's the sad thing that's happening today. And that's why so many of our students don't don't stay Christians in college. That's why evangelicalism is not having the effect that it's had on culture in the past, because at the end of the day, most most churches out there, evangelical churches out there believe that sound doctrine and expository preaching um, is just kind of lame. It's just lame. It's or it's too easy. Just pick another text, pick the next text. It's too lame. It's too easy. It's not fun. It's not exciting. And that's not how you reach the world. And so I'm all for reaching the world. I mean, we've done, done uh, dozens and dozens of baptisms here over the past uh, eight years that I've been the pastor. Um, And so not against evangelism at all. So it's not that, but it's saying, listen, there is that, yes, there is a world out there going to hell in a handbasket, but some of that is because we as evangelicals have decided that that winning the world's opinion of us is more important to us than telling them the hard truths of God, sin, Christ, and salvation, repent and believe. And so it, it, these are these are really sad days for evangelicalism. I've been a Christian for 25 years, so I'm no like long-term expert of these things, but but it, it, it seems to me that we're, we're, we're on a downswing right now and we, we need revival. We need an awakening. Yeah. Amen, brother. You know, some people say that the battle for the Bible is over, that we, you know, we won it in the seventies and eighties. The problem is, is we didn't keep pushing and we didn't push hard enough and we didn't keep pressing home the, the truths of the sufficiency of scripture enough. And so we didn't, we, we may have won the, we may have won the, you know, the theological battle, but we did not. I don't think. I think it's safe to say we didn't win the war, because those ideologies are still there, and and what underpin that is still there. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about that. The you read, you read a book like Marston's Reforming Fundamentalism, and you'll see throughout that book that the Achilles heel of evangelicalism is the desire for relevance. It is the desire to be considered not a weird wacko fundamentalist by the world and it is that desire for relevance that has led to the cancer eating at the very core of evangelicalism and it is unfortunate but it is a fact i think that this this lust for relevance is has what is what's giving us all of this false doctrine in our day and even the desire in ETS to uh, accept people back into ETS who completely deny inerrancy, but don't really deny inerrancy. You know, Matthew didn't really write, you know, 
Matthew didn't really write these things, or this is a legend that got that got put into the text, you know. But you know, but I still I still affirm inerrancy. Yeah, there are three Isaiahs, but I still affirm inerrancy. Yeah, there was an editor that came along after Daniel was written to 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 make it look like it was prophecy, but it really wasn't. Yeah, but I'm still an evangelical. I still believe in inerrancy. It's a shell game that's being played today, and it's all so that non-believing, unbelieving, anti-believing liberal uh, theological people in Harvard and Yale and other schools of theology can look at evangelicals and go, oh, maybe you guys aren't as idiotic as I thought you were. Yeah, it's really good, brother. Why should Christians care about biblical unity in their local churches, and what does biblical unity look like in our local church? Well, I, uh, Galatians six one says, "Watch yourself so that you may not be tempted." So that so I quoted that earlier. So uh, let me let me bring up Ephesians four because Paul makes it clear in verse three to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we should be concerned about it um, because we're commanded in Ephesians 4, 3, amongst others, to uh, to do that. And really, it, 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 that, that verse, so in the ESV, it's eager to maintain, so it's protect. You know, the other was the NIV, make every effort. Like, this is this is a significant thing that we need to work towards. But, but what you find as you read chapter 4 in light of chapter 2 is that the result of Jesus' death and resurrection is a unified people of God. And so he broke down the barriers that separated Jews and non-Jews. He, he destroyed those barriers to unite us into one new man, the church, this, this new entity that he creates after his death and resurrection. And so here we have this, this new person, this, the church that now has access to the father, uniting Jews and non-Jews together. And so, and, and as a result of that, then Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So not only are we commanded, but it, it when, when we don't care about unity, we're not caring about one of the most significant effects of the gospel, which is, which is, which is redoing what happened at Babel and reuniting people across ethnicities into one new man called the body of Christ called the church. And so, so there's, so there's that aspect. And then there, there are other results of the gospel that are also undermined if we don't care about unity, like we're all adopted into God's family. So we're all family members. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all united to Christ. So no one's more united than another. There's no like older brother, younger brother thing where, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm seniority over you in the family of God. Like there's none of that. The results of the gospel is that we're all united together. And so union with Christ, we all have the same inheritance in Christ. This is Paul's argument for why the Judaizing heresy is so bad in Galatians chapter three, these, these, these permanent realities that exist for Christians. And so we should care about it because we're commanded to, we should care about it because the results of the gospel are replete in the new Testament that, that we are united together and we shouldn't allow anything to separate us. And if there is something that separates us, we've got to deal with it immediately and then forgive as we've been forgiven. But again, the social justice movement, foments antisocial behavior by fomenting 
injustice. And as a result of that, it leads to a lack of love, a destruction of unity, and a, a, a fight amongst people that are supposed to be united to one another. Amen, brother. Amen. Really well said. You know, I know there's a lot of parents that are very concerned about their they move their kids out of public yeah. school and so on and so forth. I know that I'm, I'm telling somebody that I'm sure hears about it way more than I do. But what role do parents play in guarding their children against the onslaught of social justice? And what advice do you have for, for them to do this task in a God-honoring way? So, so I think when it comes to parents, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I would like to be able to send my kids to a school where I don't have to worry about what my kids are being taught. And I know for most parents, they're not able to do that. They, they're Christians, but they have to either they're, they're not able to homeschool. They're not able to afford a Christian school. And so they, they have to send their kids to some kind of school that like when I was, when I was going to public school in the eighties, um, school was neutral for the most part is reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, I, I learned, I can remember learning songs like Oh, Holy Night in my church Christmas pageants that would happen every year. Um, away in a manger. I learned that at my public school in Southern California back in the 80s. So there was a Christian veneer to society and there was a neutrality in public schools um, that doesn't exist anymore. The culture is anti-Christian and schools, public schools are becoming more and more anti-Christian. That doesn't mean there aren't Christians in the public schools that don't do those things. It doesn't mean that there aren't Christians fighting against it in the public school. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for a parent with children, it would be great if the home, the church, and the school were all united in their doctrine, were all united in their worldview. But unfortunately, one of those is against the other two in most places. And so parents need to know what their children are being taught. They can't be passive. Like my parents had the luxury of being back in the day. They can't be, I can't be, we can't be passive. We have to know what our children are being taught. We have to know the curriculum. We have to know the teachers. There is, so number one, number two, Parents have to get informed about what's going on in their local schools, in the school boards. They've got to have some kind of, they, they can't just be on Instagram all day. They can't just focus on their job or sports and that's it. They, they can't escape. We, we, Christian parents don't have the luxury anymore of escaping and just think, well, everything's going to be fine because things are neutral. <clears throat> that's not how it is anymore. So a parent has to get informed and they have to get concerned. There has to be a sense in them that this isn't good, what my child could be hearing. This isn't right. This isn't biblical. This is not what I want my child exposed to. And then third, I think they have to get involved, which means, again, yeah, you got to not binge watch that show. Yeah, you're going to have to put that. You're going to have to time shift that that football game. You're going to have to. uh 
not go to the movies as much, whatever it is. Like you're, you're going to have to put that stuff aside for it because you love your child and you have to get involved in their lives. Now, for me, I'm blessed. We have a Christian school here and Arizona has these incredible tax things so that my kids go to Christian school for free. And the superintendent of the school goes to the, is a member at our church. And so I know that the church, the school, and our home are all united, but I'm, I'm a minority in this country when it comes to that. And so for parents, but even still, I'm talking to the teachers, I'm reading the emails, I'm, I'm getting to know what's the Bible curriculum. Like they even bring me in to, to talk about the Bible curriculum, but that's because of who I am being a pastor. But my point is that there is a level of involvement concern that has to take place, but it's not going to take place unless they get informed first. So, you know, as a as as a pastor of a church or the, the senior pastor and and those types of things, what what do you say to people in your own church? Where do, do you advise them to go to the Christian school? Do you advise them to to stay in the public school, or do you advise them to go to homeschool, or do you take more of like a a new not a cookie cutter approach, but more of like a more of a nuanced approach based on you know, what, what they have going on, what, what's your, what's your approach and how do you answer that? Yeah. At this point, we treat it like a Romans 14 that be convinced in your own mind, what you should do. Um, but each one has its positives and negatives. So there's not a one size fits all. And there's not a, this is the faithful way to do it. Um, so, like I said, here in Arizona, there are tax breaks, tax benefits that allow kids to go to private school for free. And so we have we we're able to be a part of that and take advantage of that. Um, most people here don't know about that. Most parents don't know that that even exists, but it does. And so for us, we encourage people like if you're going to put your kids in public school, that's going to come with positives and negatives that you're going to have to deal with. If you, if you homeschool, that's going to have positives and negatives, private Christian school, positives and negatives. And you're just going to have to deal with those. You, but, but my point is you can't be neutral and you can't be passive anymore. Not if you care about the shaping of your child's worldview, the shaping of how they understand reality. Um, you can't, you can't be neutral in that. If you, if you're neutral in that, see the world is a discipling influence. It is trying to disciple everybody towards world likeness, you know? And so here we are saying we, we're, we're Christians. We have a discipleship mandate as well. And it is to disciple our kids into salvation and then into Christ likeness. And so there is a battle for what your child is going to become. They're going to either become like the world or they're going to become like Christ. And that doesn't happen by drifting. Only dead things drift. We don't drift into discipleship. It is a battle. But again, most of most most Americans, most even American Christians, most of us, we 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 bow to the idol of comfort, and so we 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 don't really take action with anything. So we just kind of float, and we just cross our fingers and hope it's all going to work out in the end. And God is sovereign, and God sovereignly do all these blessed things that we're supposed to do when the Bible is telling us over and over and commanding us to do things uh, in light of God's sovereignty. Um, and so I think that there, there has to be a, a real sense that, that 
that whatever decision a a um a parents make that they make it saying these are the biblical principles that are driving this decision and from there we'll we'll support our church in any way that we can but but making sure that those three things home school and church are all united for for my wife and I that's a non-negotiable for us we will we will gladly suffer um, not have money to do other things so that our kids can be protected for that. That's really good, brother. Really, really good. So how can pastors help prepare the people in their local church to face the challenge of uh, social justice in their daily lives? Gosh, um, I think it starts with having an honest time of confession before the Lord about the fear of man. Because if you're going to seek to protect your flock from the social justice movement, you are setting yourself up. You're, you're painting a target on yourself. And so you just have to deal with that. You have to deal with that in your own soul. You may have to deal with that with your wife and your kids. But when it comes to pastoring, I think there are four things that make shepherding what it is. You've got to feed the flock God's word. You've got to lead the flock like Christ. You have to care for the flock and you have to protect the flock. That's what it means to be a shepherd, which is pastor. Same thing. And so for the pastor, protecting the flock is not optional. and the social justice movement is the attack on the church today. So go ahead and fight your battles about Calvinism or classical versus presuppositional apologetics. Fight your battles about charismatic things. Go ahead and fight those battles. But, but right now that the anti-gospel enemy that is the most prolific and the most powerful today is the social justice movement. And if all of our guns are not pointed at that, then every single day, it just advances a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And past, so number one, I think pastors need to understand the fight that we're in. This is a civilizational fight that we're in that happens to be a theological movement disguised as a political movement. So pastors, you, you speak, you, you, you may not speak about foreign policy and tax codes, fine, but you have to speak on theological moral issues. And this is the theological moral issue of our day. So let's stop fighting. So number one, fear of man, got to deal with it. Number two, understand that these other skirmishes are great during peacetime, but we're at war. And we have to fight this war. This, this, if this war is not won, then it is, it is very easy to see another thousand years of darkness. This, and, and again, this isn't fear-mongering. This is what this is a hundred and what 150 years of darkness in Russia. This is currently uh 
what is it, 70 years of darkness in China? Like that's the direction that if this movement continues to gain steam, that's the direction this is going to go. So I've, I've, I've been to Asian countries where, where there's lockdown. I've, I've been to the places where I've got to wear disguises to go into places to teach people the Bible. I've, I've done that. I've seen what it's like. I don't want to live that way. I don't, want, I don't want my kids to live that way. And we happen to be in a country where we are able to influence the direction, where it's not just a uniparty up there doing whatever it does, whatever it wants to do, and we just kind of have to deal with it. That's not us right now in America. We get to influence it so influence it towards the bible now i'm not saying christian nationalism i'm not not saying any of that stuff but i'm just saying we get the opportunity to do that so so let's do it so pastors fear man understand the battle and then be willing to say to your flock hey you're in trouble you're in danger and i've got to disciple you in this and we've got to read this book together. We've got to watch these videos together. We've got need all our small groups to do this or to do that. Because again, when you, when, when you truly understand the movement, it is a completely different religion and not just a different religion. It is a substitute religion. It is seeking to supplant Christianity in the hearts of your people and replace it with a different gospel, a different Christ, a completely different worldview. So if that was Mormonism, you'd fight. If that was Catholicism, you'd fight. If that was Jehovah's Witness, you would fight. Well, this is the same exact thing. It's just disguised as politics, but it's a religion. That's really good, brother. Well, where can people go to find out more about you on social media or otherwise? Well, the church's website is Redeemer AZ. Z is in zebra, redeemeraz.org. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of those things. But really, the, the church website has all the resources. Um, I'm, I am, uh, yeah, I, I, as a Gen X, you know, getting into technology really fast, but then um, early on, like you were saying earlier in the nineties, you know, jumping in and getting into it really fast, but then just seeing all the changes, like I can't keep up with all the change. So I'm just, but our church has Twitter, Instagram, rumble, TikTok, YouTube has just like cross Apple iTunes podcasts and, and Spotify and all that stuff. And so there, there's a ton of different places now that I think about it to, uh, to be able to, to get connected to the work that God is doing here. Wonderful brother. Wonderful. You know, as I always say, John, there's, there's so much to, so much to talk about with, with all of these things and there's, there's, that's equally true with this topic. And so yes. you know, just as we wrap up, what, what takeaways do you have for those who listen and watch this show? Well, number one, again, I just want to thank you for letting me be on your show. It really is an honor that you would let me do that. Um, as I encourage, as I think about people, um, I think about that picture um, from a Hitler rally where everybody is, is hailing Hitler, except that one guy with his arms crossed. You know, have you seen that picture? Uh, I'll have to go look no? that up. Yeah. Go look that up. Yeah. It's uh, it's an incredible picture and there's not a single person looking at that picture that would think I wouldn't want to be that guy. 
I want to be that guy who didn't hail Hitler, who didn't give in to the social pressure, who didn't embrace the demonic ideology, but who stood against it. And yeah, that might mean I lose my job. That might mean people leave my church. That might mean that family members don't come over for Christmas. That might mean that children uh, that we have, that we love, think we're privileged oppressors. Um, it may mean that, but for the good of those you know and love, this is a time for Christians to stand. That may mean getting involved in your school board. That may mean running for city council. That may mean running for state or, or federal representative. Like it, it could mean um, discipling your teenagers, reading a book like Stand With Them or, or Owen's book or Vody's or, or, all, or all of them and others doing this so that what, wherever you find yourself, whether it's your job or your kid's school or your family, just like you wouldn't let Mormonism into your house, just like you wouldn't let Mormonism infiltrate your kid's school. This is another religion and it is seeking to turn your children into social justice warriors. And so what I would, what I would encourage Christians to do is stand against it. And we don't look at people that stood against Roman tyranny or tyranny in the CCP, or we, we don't look at those people and think, man, they even died standing against it. What a waste. We look at those who stand and we, we honor them. We elevate them. We think they are the greatest Christians in history who decided faithfulness to Jesus and love for my neighbor was far more important than my own personal comfort. And so each one of us is going to have individual moments. It's probably not going to ever cost us our lives, but there are individual moments in each of our lives when we have the choice to be quiet and to pretend we're going along to getting along or stand. And so I know that would mean hard decisions for some people, but if we really believe that God is sovereign, then, then he can find us a new job. He can find us new friends. He can find us a new church. He can do these things that we need him to do when we're faithful to him. And so let's stand trusting in humility and love that God will be with us no matter what. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to be able to talk with you. Uh, I have been uh, watching since, you know, Costi came over from California and uh, I've been very blessed to see how the Lord is using Redeemer and I've heard about it. And so uh, I'm thankful for that and also for your book and for the time that you gave me today. So guys, uh, I want to encourage you to go pick up Stand Christianity versus Social Justice. And uh, go follow John and Redeemer and uh, join in uh, thankfulness to God for, for how the Lord is using John and uh, the church and the, the elders there. So thanks, John. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, 
on Instagram at Servants of Grace or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.